From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the Wall Street Journal opinion page. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of The Journal. Thanks very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple's podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, China's crisis. How serious are the economic woes facing the People's Republic of China? Over the summer, the scale of the challenges facing Xi Jinping and the ruling Communist Party become dramatically clearer. China, remember, was supposed to bounce back this year after its disastrously restrictive zero COVID lockdown policy was finally lifted at the end of last year. But the recovery is really nowhere in sight. Manufacturing activity is declining, exports are falling, home prices are down, consumer prices have dropped into deflation, youth unemployment has reached record highs, financial instability stalks the country, overbuilt real estate has produced the collapse of at least one major real estate company and is bringing down another. Massive debts at local government level are making matters worse. Things look so grim that the parties have recently deep-sixed formerly publicly available economic data. So what's going on? Is this merely a glitch in China's long progression towards what many people have long argued would be its global economic ascendancy? Or is there something more serious afoot? Are the structural weaknesses and contradictions in its Communist Party's led economic model now laid bare? with really serious long-term economic consequences. What does it all mean for the rest of us, particularly for US-China relations and the strategic challenge that China poses? Well, to talk about all this this week, I'm delighted to say I have with me George Magnus. George is a long-time, very experienced and widely regarded observer of and commentator on China. He was formerly chief economist at UBS. He now writes and speaks widely as an analyst at the China Center at the University of Oxford, and a scholar at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. He's written several books, including one published just a few years ago, which looks both prescient and extremely germane to the discussion we're having. It's called Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. And George Magnus joins me now. George, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you for having me. We're looking at the state of China. There's obviously been a lot of focus on China's economy in the last couple of months. You've written widely about it. Others have too. I want to get an overall sense from you on how bad things are right now. You know, we came into this year, China had finally abandoned what seemed, everybody sort of seemed to think was a fairly disastrous zero COVID policy. When the restrictions were lifted, I think we all expected as, you know, as other economies came back after they lifted their COVID restrictions, China particularly given the severity of the restrictions, would come back strongly. Yet the slew of data we've seen, particularly over the last few months, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's unemployment, whether it's the overall level of demand, whether it's things like the exports and others, seem to suggest really quite pronounced weakness. What's going on? Why is China not bouncing back as we expected? Well, that's a good question. I'm sure um, there are a lot of people in Communist Party headquarters in Beijing who are looking at the same question. It's been a big disappointment because we thought, and I'm sure that Chinese officials thought, that once people would be allowed to congregate and mix freely again, as we found out ourselves, you know, that there would be this kind of revenge consumption, which took place as a reaction to people being shut down and forcibly restricted in residential compounds and so on and so forth. And we did see a bit of a a flurry of consumption spending in restaurants, eating out, transportation, theme parks, leisure and hospitality in the beginning of the year. But it didn't touch the big areas that really account for you know, kind of the the elephant, really, of consumer spending, which is housing and automobiles. And I think that this overlay of the property bust in China, which began really three years ago, I mean, it's 
sometimes been a bit sort of slow motion, but it began in 2020 with the imposition of balance sheet constraints and regulations on property developers. This has really been a kind of a huge downer on the Chinese economy and on the confidence of the Chinese middle class. It's not the only thing that's been disappointing, but it certainly accounts for a lot of the reasons for China's disappointing performance this year. Let's talk about that, the problems in the real estate sector. We've seen whatever it was last year, a couple of years ago, we had the collapse of Evergrande, the big developer this year. The name that's been on everybody's lips is Country Garden. There are rumors and stories about others. Again, give us some background on that. The story generally that we read is that there was massive overbuilding here about these ghost cities in China. That's been a story for at least a decade. Is this just the accumulation of many, many years of essentially misdirected investment, overinvestment in the real estate sector, building up this huge excess, this huge glut of real estate, people taking out mortgages, you know, hear these stories sort of sight unseen, buying these places which end up never being built. Tell us what's been going on in in the real estate sector and what's at the root of the problem there. Sure. I mean, I don't want to go too deeply into sort of, you know, way back history, but I think it's important to have some kind of appreciation for really how we came here. So obviously, from the moment that, or from the time when China transformed its housing welfare system into a proper residential housing market, I mean, the boom kind of set in. And from roughly the financial crisis onwards, so around about 2008, 2009, I mean, it really picked up a lot of momentum, aided and abetted by this big shift that took place in China's development model towards a kind of reliance on credit for housing and for infrastructure. And this all really began to come to, well, it didn't come to a grinding halt originally, but the whole kind of deleveraging campaign that started off in 2017, 2018, really has had a deleterious effect, not just on the whole kind of credit system and the liabilities of financial institutions, but it's kind of shifted everything away from concern about, you know, how do banks fund themselves and what's the risk of contagion, which is something that we worried about sort of six, seven years ago, towards assets and the fact that property prices and property transactions had been artificially bolstered every time the Chinese economy got into a little bit of trouble. And so now, finally, you know, uh, when I say now, I mean within the last few years, Xi Jinping has basically professed this kind of mantra about housing is for living in, not for speculation. And the government has really kind of sort of bitten the bullet, as it were. I mean, I don't think they're doing this because they think it's a good idea. I think they just are frightened about the instability of rampant credit growth in the economy. But actually, the fall guy, so to speak, has really been the property market, which has been, as I said, bolstered for for far too long and which has now kind of is kind of oozing excess inventory, particularly in towns and cities that most tourists never go to. These are the smaller, medium-sized cities, tier three, tier four, they call them as administrative kind of categories, where there's a huge and chronic excess supply. So not necessarily Shenzhen or Beijing or Shanghai, but a lot of other places where prices are falling pretty quickly and where transactions volumes have collapsed. Some people have said, compared what China's going through right now, and these analogies are always imperfect, but I want to get your sense of how the scale of this and the significance of this. Some people have compared it to the Lehman Brothers collapse and the financial crisis, obviously, that followed that in the United States and the West in 2008. You know, again, there are so many differences between the economy and not least, obviously, the role of government, the way the government can do things in China that governments in the West and 
democracies can't do. Is it on that kind of a scale, the problems we're seeing in the real estate sector? Is it that kind of a crisis for them? Yes. I mean, the similarity, of course, is that property is at the center of instability that's kind of rampant in the economy. But I think beyond that, the dissimilarities are probably much greater, right? So when Lehman's happened and in the wake of the kind of property bust in the United States, the real estate sector was what, I mean, broadly defined, maybe eight, nine percent of GDP. I mean, that's residential investment was probably about five or six percent of GDP and put a bit onto that for, you know, housing services and commodities and so on. So perhaps even a little bit bigger than that. But according to this now well-known and well-digested research paper that was produced by Ken Rogoff and a Chinese associate of his a couple of years ago, I mean, China's real estate sector broadly defined as about 25, 26 percent of GDP. So that's bigger than Spain's was in 2007, 2006. And so, you know, losing the momentum in that sector and the demographics are terrible for China's household formation in the future and for first-time buyers. So this chronic excess capacity is going to be with China for uh, many years to come, I think, even if sales were to pick up to a kind of moderate level in the next couple of years. But that's one dissimilarity is scale. The second dissimilarity is no big Chinese banks are going to be allowed to go bust in the way that Lehman's was. And so I think the likelihood of there being a major financial blow up in China, the like of which we experienced in 2007, 2008, I think it's not small, like infinitesimally small, but I think it's unlikely. But that doesn't mean that it's a kind of a a free lunch for for China. I mean, the economy and and the people will pay the price of this misallocation of capital, but in a different way. I do want to talk about the extent to which these are structural problems in the Chinese economy, as opposed to kind of even, you know, sort of what sounds like you're describing almost sort of classic sort of bubble, even though one on a very large scale, given the size of the real estate sector in the Chinese economy. But I do want to get onto that. But just very quickly, you know, when we've seen periods of weakness in China in the past, and we have seen them repeatedly over the last 10 or 15 years, and including some problems in the financial sector, there's usually been a response. Central government's usually pretty reliable, big fiscal stimulus. Local governments can help out too. The People's Bank of China weighs in with easing of policy. We don't seem to be seeing that this time. So the expected kind of stimulus response that you do get, and again, we're used to it again in the United States and in Britain and elsewhere too, when you see these kinds of economic weaknesses, the Fed cuts interest rates, maybe we get a big fiscal stimulus. We don't seem to be getting that this time. What's going on there? Well, we're getting something from the government because they can't sit idly by and, you know, sit on their hands and just allow this just to unfold because the consequences of an unconstrained housing collapse, I think, could be disastrous. So, we are seeing some reaction, but it's not the Zuka type of stimulus reaction that we have seen in the past. And that's because I think the government realizes that if they were to do this, they would actually exacerbate misallocation of capital and the eventual costs which would have to be paid in terms of losses and possibly even to financial stability. You know, whilst we've all been fretting about all these economic numbers that you described earlier during the summer, I mean, mortgage rates have come down for both new mortgage owners and existing mortgage owners. There have been attempts to stoke up the stock market by cutting trading fees, for example, and by talking the market up. I mean, not always successfully. The government really thinks it's got a consumer confidence problem. So they've, you know, relaxed personal income tax allowances for families that have children and or with elderly care in the family and tried to stabilize the decline in the renminbi. So all of these things actually say, 
that the government does know that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And they've also accelerated local government borrowing. Local governments are in a terrible financial situation. They can't really afford, many of them, to finance the kind of social spending which they are responsible for. So many of these things are happening, and we may see some further measures during the next few weeks if kind of rumors are correct. But we're not going to see, I don't think, this kind of heavy-duty credit creation, bazooka-type infrastructure stimulus which have characterized past episodes of economic weakness. And I think that's because the government is scared, really, about propagating greater instability in the economy and in the financial system. You talked about local governments, and again, that's been a notable feature of this current, of these current problems. Why are local governments so financially strapped? Is that because they've been hit hard by this real estate problems in the form of lower revenues? And what's going on with local governments? The proximate reason for the dire straits of local governments, and then I think people need to understand, you know, the, the significant role that local governments play in China. They account for the lion's share of the provision of public goods and services, but only a relatively small share of total tax revenues. So most of the tax revenues go to Beijing. Most of the spending is done by local governments. And so there is this kind of system which they have, which is not exactly like, you know, the US system of revenue sharing, but actually the Beijing government does play a role in trying to sort of even out these kinds of inconsistencies. But the proximate reason that they're in trouble is because, on average, about a third of their revenues come from land sale revenues. And because property prices are weak and land auctions have been cancelled or have failed, they're critically short of revenues to supply uh, or to, to finance the public goods and services they're supposed to supply. But the fundamental and systemic problem that China has is this severe imbalance between the spending and revenue responsibilities of local versus central governments. I mean, the United States had this kind of problem in the 19th century, and it triggered at least three financial crises that I'm aware of, uh, and eventually had to be solved or sorted out by rule of law and the you know appropriate responsibility defined in law. But China doesn't really have this, and you know Beijing likes to keep local governments on a kind of bit of a tight leash. But something is going to have to change there because the status quo is not sustainable, really. How should we see this, George? These problems we. We've all got used in the last 20 years to thinking of the Chinese economy as this extraordinary behemoth that's growing steadily, growing from a fraction of the size of the US economy 30 years ago to basically, certainly in terms of purchasing power parities, you know, roughly similar size to the US economy, obviously much smaller in terms of per capita because of the size of the population. But we've been used to seeing China as being on this trajectory of economic ascendancy. And, you know, certainly here in the United States, there have been hundreds of scholarly articles and books talking about China's century and China's economic inevitable rise to the sort of the economic superpower status. Should we see this as, you know, either cyclical or even if they're structural problems, maybe, you know, problems that are going to have to be resolved, will be resolved. As you say, there's going to have to be some of these imbalances in the system are going to have to be worked out. The government's going to have to figure out a better composition of demand. But we can see all of this as a kind of a glitch in China's steady rise. Or does this to you, and I should turn, I mentioned in my introduction, you wrote a book a couple of years ago about you know, red flags, about the perils that China was facing. Is this something more serious than that? Is this something that actually calls into question the actual sustainability of the economic model that China has, in particular, the idea that China could achieve a level of economic success and prosperity equal to or greater than the United States with this very different economic system? Does it fundamentally challenge our assumptions about China's economic trajectory? I think it does. And I think if you have to kind of pin the donkey really on the person, really, I think you have to say that something dramatically changed in China's governance structure and its performance 
metrics when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. It's not to say that he's personally responsible for everything that's happened, because he certainly inherited imbalances and problems, headwinds, which had already kind of been blowing a little bit, I would say roughly since the financial crisis, but maybe they even predate that. But he's definitely made them worse. And um, obviously, we don't have time to go into all the kind of, you know, sort of thorny details. But the problems that China faces now, are they're all essentially homemade. I mean, the bad external environment, export controls, constraints on technology, these things don't help. And they certainly make for a dramatically different sort of environment from the China that we experienced and watched during the last 20 or 30 years. But the domestic or the homemade, made-in-China problems are really, and we've alluded to them all, really. I mean, we've alluded to the debt problem, which is a tax on future growth. We've alluded to the kind of rapid aging of the population. We haven't really spoken about productivity growth, which is stalled. The governance problem, particularly that of private enterprises. The message to private enterprises is certainly, you know, we, we want you to make money, but only if you basically align your interests with the social and political goals of the Communist Party. So there are big kind of constraints under which uh, private entrepreneurs and firms now operate in the shadows, really, of the state system, state enterprises. Um, So for all of these reasons, I think that China faces systemic problems. I mean, we would say as, uh, you know, kind of external economists, should we say, but actually this is also true of some Chinese economists as well, that the model of China needs a dramatic overhaul, but it's politically extremely difficult for the Communist Party to embrace these changes because they would threaten the raison d'etre of the party, which is to rule unchallenged. So I think China's tipping point in, you know, debt, real estate, demographics, these are all very important things, but the politics really, which under lies, whether it can change or not, I think is really important. And maybe under a different government in the future, things could change. But I think under Xi Jinping's government, I think it's very unlikely. The Wall Street Journal reported uh, just in the last week or so, we had a, a very interesting piece about the attitude of Xi Jinping and his economic advisors to this, and particularly Xi Jinping, and that in particular, he seems to be kind of actually ideologically opposed to the idea of promoting consumer-led growth, which is one of the things that not has been talked about in China for a very long time, is the way for China to transition from that, from a kind of developing economy to a more developed one. You need a you know, much higher level of consumption as a total proportion of GDP. He seems to be not just reluctant to do that, but actually ideologically against that, because he sort of sees in that kind of expressions of individuality. It elevates the individual and individual consumption tastes and the sort of the expression of the individual. He's against it. So if that's true, if that's right, that does seem suggest that it is almost a choice here that China's making, that it's not going to do things that could maybe you know, assist it to transition towards a, you know, a kind of a, a model of sort of sustained growth, but actually that it wants to maintain this, what you've just described, that, you know, the mistakes that Xi Jinping's making, he seems to be kind of almost doubling down on them. Yeah, I was going to say it's a sort of a fantasy, but I think, you know, people still entertain the idea that maybe things get kind of bad enough that the government will change its direction, change its trajectory, To me, this is like asking leopards to change their spots. I just don't think that's going to happen. So these people are basically Leninists, right? And they focus very much on a kind of a production, investment, supply orientation of the economy from which they think that trickle-down benefits will raise the quality and standard of living of the population. They do not really believe 
in the kinds of things that we practice in varying degrees in liberal-leaning democracies of we think social welfare is fundamentally a kind of an okay idea. We have different kind of perceptions about how far it should go, but we actually think that social safety nets are a good thing. We think that public intervention in the economy to promote consumption and, you know, low taxes is a good thing, generally speaking. For Xi Jinping, this is all somewhat alien, to be honest. He certainly now, if not um, in the beginning of his term of office, certainly believes, like we do, that national security is really important, or the government is really kind of obsessed, I think, with stability and with controlling risks. They're not really interested in going for growth. They're not really interested in risk-taking, certainly not the kind of what they would call egregious risk-taking, which we think is like part of the whole process of creative destruction, etc. And so this kind of this controlling, repressive kind of view about how to manage the economy, which is built on a, a faltering model, if you see what I mean. I think this is almost like a bit of a doom loop, actually. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with economist and China expert George Magnus looking at not only the economic weakness that China's facing, but what the strategic implications of that might be. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm speaking with George Magnus, economist and China expert. We're talking about the current crisis facing the Chinese economy. Well, a great experience of Marxism-Leninism, obviously, in the 20th century was the Soviet Union, which failed and failed in large part because of the simple economic dysfunction and stagnation that those top-down policies produced. It would be going too far to think that this approach that Xi Jinping's taken could lead China in the same direction. <laughs> There's the 64 trillion yuan question, right? I mean, I'm not really in the collapse school, right? I think, you know, China is in a lot of trouble in terms of its, you know, managing its economy in the next few years. Obviously, a little bit like Japan 40 years ago. I mean, it's got great companies. It's doing incredible things in science and technology and engineering. But its macroeconomic structure and its governance actually really isn't working. It's not kind of fit for purpose anymore. So both of these things can be true. So I don't think China is going to collapse. It maintains a lot of controls over the economy, over people's lives, over capital movements. So I actually think they can probably keep going. But that keeping going doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to end up successfully navigating a transition to a more dynamic, sustainable economy. That, I think, is basically beyond the pale, actually, this juncture. I think something very, very dramatic would have to change politically for us to believe that that was possible. We haven't talked about demographics. I mean, China's you know, famously got awful demographics. And I think one of the things that sort of marks China out 
from a sort of a development model is unlike those economies that grew, you know, after the Second World War, those East Asian economies like Korea and Japan and then Singapore and sort of Southeast Asian nations too, you know, they grew with these tremendous inputs of resources and obviously labor. And, you know, they were able to grow rich essentially and then develop, in Japan's case in particular, develop these huge demographic problems. China, in the old saying, is sort of growing old before it gets rich, thanks in large part to the one-child policy, the broader kind of tighter restrictions on population. They have astonishing numbers already right now in terms of the dependency ratio. People talk about the number of workers that there are for retirees. And if you look 20, 30 years hence, they're going to have a dramatically worse demographic situation than certainly than the United States and, and indeed most other countries in the world. I mean, how much of an issue is that for them in terms of their long-term growth prospects? And is there any signs at all that they're tackling that? I think it's a dramatic issue. I don't think it's probably something that I would put in my kind of top three of the most pressing issues for China, not least because it's a kind of a glacial phenomenon. But incrementally, it'll accumulate over time. And so the decline in the working age population, as we know from our own experiences, in kind of faster aging countries, it will lead to financial pressures for individuals, for the government, for the pension system, healthcare system, and what have you. So there are ways we can try to compensate for this, but unfortunately, not very many, to be honest. But if you look at the kind of coping mechanisms, as I call them, China really doesn't score very high on any of them. So there's no immigration virtually to speak of into China to compensate for a declining working age population. They have falling female participation rates in the labor force. I mean, actually, in contrast, Japan has had a rising female participation, okay, from a low base, but actually the kind of direction of change has happened in Japan. It's not happened in China. And productivity growth, as I said before, you know, has stalled. So uh, you look at, for example, someone what ought to be, I mean, it's politically fractious, even in France, but one of the most obvious things that governments can do, of course, is to raise the pension eligibility or the retirement age. But this is something which is very, very sparsely being followed here and there, maybe by one or two cities and provinces, but there is no national policy to lift pension eligibility age. I mean, that's one of the first things that you really need to do to try to keep people who will have long life expectancy in jobs and in productive jobs for longer. But that's politically proven to be something very, very difficult to do. As I said, China is not the only country that has that problem. So it's not unique. Finally, George, just look at the international dimensions of this. Again, the assumption of China's continuing growth and ascendancy to this sort of global economic superpower status has very much underpinned the strategic debate, the strategic challenge that China poses to the United States with its rising power in the Pacific, its rising power in Southeast Asia, the South China Sea, the threat that it poses to Taiwan. Again, if we're right here and that China's facing these fundamental structural problems, which seem to be, as you said, kind of a choice almost in terms of what Xi Jinping has been doing and the, the kind of economy, the kind of country and society he wants to create, does this make the China challenge less of a concern, weaker for us, because if people are already revisiting some of their assumptions that China is going to overtake the United States in terms of total economic power in the next 10 or 20 years. A lot of those views are being revised. So maybe, you know, the United States doesn't have to worry so much about that. Or does it actually heighten the tension because China's not going to achieve what was expected for it a few years ago. If it is weakening at home, it may seek, you know, as, as Xi Jinping has also done, obviously in his 10 years, to pursue a much more assertive policy overseas. How does this all feed into the whole question of the China challenge? I'm sort of laughing, not because it's funny, but because if, you know, if only our crystal balls were good enough to be able to predict exactly what the outcomes might be, 
I'm kind of torn myself between this idea that, you know, that if China was a sort of a confident, striding country that was elbowing the United States aside and getting its way in global governance, left, right and center, would we think that that was, you know, a kind of a good place for the rest of us to be? You know, probably not. So we're kind of focused really now on whether a weakened China or a more challenged China in the future might actually be a threat because it might distract the government to adopt international relations postures which could be more truculent and more threatening. And I think that is a possibility, and we'll just have to be prepared for it and monitor it very, very carefully. But I think, to be honest, I mean, it wouldn't be a good for the world if, you know, China did have a kind of a sort of 20 years of no growth. I'm not that I'm saying, suggesting that's what's going to happen. But I think the balance of probability is that China will have more difficulty, not less. Well, on that note, I guess, again, we, as you say, it's not necessarily unalloyed good news if China's struggling, but it is, at least I think, it's causing many people to revisit their assumptions about the kind of a challenge that China poses. George Magnus, thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for joining us here on Free Expression. We'll be back again next week with another deep look at one of the most important topics in the news. Thanks for joining us. In the meantime, have a great week.